Yeah, welcome, and, and praise God for mothers. Uh, just want to thank, thank God for mothers and, and give a special welcome to moms today. But um, we're uh, continuing our series on ethnic justice in the kingdom of God. And so I'm going to open us up in prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll get going. Did everyone get a handout? I think everyone probably knew about the, the handouts in the back. Good. Okay, let's pray. Father God, thank you for gathering us this morning. We thank you for the crucified and risen Christ, who is our salvation. He's the source of all of our eternal life and peace and blessing uh, and fellowship with you and with one another. We pray that you give us wisdom both me to speak and all of us to hear, give us alertness, spiritual discernment, soft hearts, and uh, clear minds so, uh, so that we can walk in the things you've called us to as your people and image Christ more and more clearly together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in this series so far, we've uh, diagnosed some of the issues and problems that are at play in matters of ethnic and racial division. We've tried to look at these from a biblical standpoint and then in more recent weeks, we've begun to pull together some tools for, for walking in unity together across these lines of possible division as the body of Christ. Um, and we're going to continue with that in the kind of more practical moving forward together today. I do want to revisit from last week uh, something that came up. Uh, we were dealing with the matter of how the local church is an outpost of the future kingdom of God where you know, the church is a place where the values of heaven, uh, that we await Christ's coming and bringing the kingdom in full. But the values of heaven today are expressed among Christ's people on earth in the church. And these would include, especially pertinent to this series, uh, the radical love and unity that crosses uh, ethnic lines and unifies us across ethnic lines. And I laid out the following goal um, for ethnic unity in the church. I said, we should desire to be a church where the unifying power of the gospel works to create an ethnic unity among us that matches the all nations scope of the kingdom of God as appropriate to our community. And I uh, had some conversations in the, in the week since last Sunday and realized that I need to make a few brief clarifications. Now, the clarifications could I could go on because there's just so much nuancing that, that could be helpful here. Uh, but for the sake of brevity, I want to try to be brief, but, but to say, and even my own thinking has somewhat clarified on what I did mean and what I want to, what I should mean by this. Um, by saying goal and desire here, I don't mean to claim, and it might have come across like I'm trying to say, that it's in our power to make sure this happens. Okay, so I don't want to claim that, that we can do this all by ourselves or uh, it's all in our hands. It's a big picture desire. It's an aspiration. It's something that we would love to see happen. Um, but it's not necessarily our agenda. It's not necessarily our marching orders to make this happen. It's important to say on the one hand, uh, it should not be that ethnicity would divide Christians into different churches. And that the degree to it, uh, other than different language. Now, of course, different languages, that's a functional and important a reason why churches might be uh, divided. Of course, you have to worship in a language that makes sense to you. But other than that, um, it, it, it should not be that churches would divide by ethnicity. The gospel is for all the nations. That's kind of the theme of Greg's lesson two weeks ago, or yeah, two weeks ago. Um, and so each local church should be for all the nations that are represented in a given community. But it's not just on us to make sure this happens. 
You can think about a ruptured personal relationship. You've got a role. Like if I have a ruptured relationship with another individual, there's a role I need to play to try to make reconciliation if there's something I need to repent of and, and reconcile. But then there's something, there's a lot that's outside of me, right? The other, the other person has a role to play. They have to want reconciliation. And these things can be so complex that um, there, might be, there might never be full reconciliation in, in an interpersonal relationship until we're all glorified until Christ returns. And it's the same dynamic at play here, too. So we just want to make sure that we're clear that while this is something that we should, I think it's appropriate to say, given the Bible's vision for ethnic unity among the people of God, we shouldn't be indifferent uh, to the fact that, that Christians tend to segregate ethnically. That should grieve us. At the same time, um, there's a limited role each of us as a church and individuals have to play and we might even disagree to, to what degree we should be actively uh, working to see this happen. That may be a legitimate area of disagreement among believers in the local church. But um, any questions about that clarification, or any clarifications needed about that clarification, questions or, or thoughts about that? Today, what we're going to do is kind of, um, you know, I just said there's a responsibility we have. Right there, that is a facet here. There is a role we have to play to make, to preserve. And I tried to frame it last week: preserving the unity in the spirit. The spirit himself makes unity in the gospel, and it's our job to fight diligently to not let things get in the way of that unity. And uh, so that's the kind of our responsibility basket. Today we're going to look at one of the big. Um, we're going to going to look at some of the things that belong in that that category of our responsibility. So, um, so let's look at that. Where we're headed today is we're going to learn a set of spirit-empowered tools for dealing with thorny tensions about ethnicity that can arise among us. And these tools are listening, sympathizing, and lamenting. And um, as I said, again, the, the role that God's given us is to protect, earnest, earnestly, diligently protect the unity that the Spirit creates among Christ's people in the gospel. These are important tools for protecting Unity, especially with regard to ethnic, possible ethnic divisions. So let's start with a problem. We have a thorny problem here. I want you to imagine the following scenario. An unarmed black man in a major U.S. city is shot and killed by police. Someone records the incident on video. The video gets out. A major furor erupts in national media and on social media. Now, there are two members of the same church who follow each other on social media. One is black, the other is white. The black man sees this news and responds with anger, grief, and deep discouragement. He writes a post that expresses these emotions along with doubt that justice is going to be done in this situation. The other friend is white, and he writes a post that expresses a very different reaction. It was a short, bouncy video Taken at night in very low light, the scene was chaotic. It was difficult to see what happened. There was no context, just a few seconds caught on video. So he says, let's not rush to judgment. Let's trust the process and wait till we have all the facts. And he can even produce statistics showing how rare incidents like these are, despite the media's portrayal, that these come up a lot in the media. But he has stats showing these are actually a lot less common than we might think. And they see each other's posts. How do they feel when they see each other's posts? 
The white friend may feel tempted to suspect that his friend has taken a victim mentality because he's been duped by the race-baiting media. Meanwhile, the black friend may be tempted to suspect that his friend is happily complicit in white supremacy and indifferent to the suffering and oppression of black people like him. Now, it's possible that they're right about each other's motives, of course. They could, this could really be what's happening with these two people. But if we're trying to be sympathetic and see each other in the best possible light, let's ask ourselves, why might they be seeing this situation so differently? Maybe you've had experiences in your life, whether social media or other um, in-person interactions, where you can relate with some of these tensions of, we're seeing it so differently. Why are we seeing it so differently? Well, I would argue, especially with regard to this example that I created, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's my world that I made this little example, one of these people is operating in the mode of objective facts. He's trusting that the criminal justice system is going to recognize those facts and administer justice. And he's likely had a history of good interactions with law enforcement, and he likely trusts that the system generally produces fair results he may have heard that the law enforcement in the U.S. is among the most just, it's among the most just criminal justice systems in the world. The other is operating largely in the mode of emotions, and he's doubting whether the criminal justice system will rightly administer justice on the basis of the facts. He's likely had a history of negative interactions with law enforcement and the justice system. He may have grown up hearing testimonies from loved ones and neighbors who've had similar bad experiences. And to him, this is just another example of a distressing pattern that he's observed many times. Now, in saying that, I don't want to, in my example, I'm not saying the black man in this example cares nothing about the facts and that the white man cares nothing about emotion. I'm talking about the primary mode in which they're operating as they see this news. So I want to ask you, who's right? This is a rhetorical question. Who's right? Part, part of what's thorny about this scenario is that, that uh, first of all, there's a disagreement about the facts. Okay, so, so we just need to recognize there's, there's a disagreement about the facts of how fair is our justice system. And uh, that largely stems from a difference of experience. Uh, we may not like to admit it, but most of what we know about the world we know from a very limited set of personal experiences and testimony from others that we know and trust. And then we take those personal experiences and testimonies from others, and we basically build our model of reality around that. Our understanding of how the world is, is based on that. So different people who have had different experiences or heard from others who have had different experiences are going to have very different understandings of how the world is beyond those experiences. So that's one thing, uh, is that we're going to have different understanding of what the facts are, um, even based on our experiences. But... We're going to take, take a look at two modes that the scenario raises, uh, facts and experience. Okay, Just going to look at the relationship from a biblical standpoint between facts and experience. Because I want to propose that they're, they're both right in their own way. Thinking in the mode of facts is right in a way, and operating in the mode of experience and emotion is right in its own way as well. And I'm not endorsing a model of truth that is subjective and determined by everyone's varying views. The Bible doesn't support that view of truth. But I am arguing, and I'm going to, I want to show you the Bible teaches that the objective, which is the outside of me, independent of me perspective, 
and the experiential or what inside of me perspective are two legitimate modes of seeing reality that the Bible affirms. And when I say experience, I mean emotion, but not only emotion, includes emotion, but just all that goes into what we experience. So we're going to talk, let's talk about facts and experience. First of all, facts. God's justice depends on facts. It hardly needs to be said that the Bible puts a high value on facts and truth, especially in in regards to doing justice. Uh, God knows and cares about all of the details of every particular case. He shows no partiality. He discerns both outward actions and the inner secrets of the heart, even maybe more than than we know our own hearts when we're acting, when we're doing what we're doing. And um, God wants human justice to reflect this, to be an extension of the truth-based justice that he himself administers. Of course, human justice is, is far more imperfect, far more limited than God's justice. We know so little uh, of the situation relative to God. We don't know heart motives, usually. Our justice is so flawed relative to his, and yet he still calls us to rule in a way that reflects his justice, impartially and based on the facts of every case. Can I have someone who'd be willing to read I'll have a couple of years. Deuteronomy 16, 19, and someone else ready for Proverbs 18, 17. So who's got Deuteronomy? Uh, Josh, Deuteronomy 16, 19. Thanks. And then uh, Jason, Proverbs 18, 17. Thanks. Good. 16, 19. Thank you. So he says, you shall not pervert justice. There's this general command. Don't, do un- don't be unjust in your rulings. And then he gets into the particulars of what would pervert justice. One of them is partiality, which is treating people differently based on who they are. And then the other is bribery. And it's interesting, the reasoning here. What, what's wrong with bribery? It blinds the eyes, which is a metaphor. Just think about it prevents someone from seeing the truth. It prevents someone, so there's this assumption that justice is based on the facts and the truth of what happened. So a bribe would have this metaphorical effect of blinding the eye so the judge doesn't really see what happened. And he makes a false ruling because he was, he was bribed. So this blindness metaphor assumes that truth, is, truth and fact are the basis of justice. You see, similarly, in Jeremiah 5.1, we won't look there, but that's another similar text. And then um, Proverbs 18.17, Jason. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines it. Yeah, that's the one to keep in your back pocket, that proverb, that uh, the more I live, uh, I'm still young, but the more I live, the more I realize how powerful a piece of wisdom that is, that um, when we've only heard one side of a matter, we're likely to think we understand the matter, and uh, we probably don't. Um, And this is a day of instant hot takes, um, especially, again, on the realm of social media, um, the way of wisdom is often silence and waiting and listening rather than quickly reacting because there's often more to the story than we first see. Um, And again, to God, all the facts of the case matter. So facts, details, particulars, they all matter for sure for God's wisdom. But God cares about experience, even in ways that press against the facts. 
So that's the next uh, sub point in your in your handout. The Bible is also quick to acknowledge that um, we're we're frail and finite humans living in a fallen world, and that fact and truth are not all that matters in the storms of life. Our ability to know and understand facts quickly runs out, and um, we often don't. Often the facts we know may seem to contradict our experience, or they create these tensions we don't know what to do with. And I'm not saying that our experience trumps the facts. But when there are tensions between our experience and the facts, God is often surprisingly willing to let us live in the tension between those two things. Okay. So uh, you have in the Bible places where, where experience and facts seem to, seem to be in tension, and it's, the answer isn't just to simply uh, let the, um, immediately solve the problem and say, well, these are the facts, so just deal with it. I'll give you a few examples. Uh, Romans 14, verses 14 to 15, beginning of verse 15. Paul's dealing with different areas of conviction on Christian liberties with regard to eating certain foods that some people think are unclean and others think are clean. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. That's a fact. Okay. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. It's kind of interesting, and that, it's a really astounding bit of spiritual wisdom, that on the one hand, he acknowledges the fact, this food is factually not unclean for you, Christian. But then in verse 15, he acknowledges the importance of experience, saying, if in your heart you're bothered by this, that matters too. And... Um, and, and what we really don't want to do is having Christians uh, destroying their own or other people's consciences. So how we walk in these liberties uh, together needs to reflect the fact that if you feel it's unclean, that matters too. It's not just everybody get over the fact that it is clean. End of story. Um, the, the, the preeminent place in the Bible that deals with the limitations of fact, I think, is the book of Job. Um, where Job suffers all of his losses. You're probably familiar with the story. His friends come over and sit with him, and in Job 2.11, it says they come over to show him sympathy and comfort him. They proceed to weep, and they go through all the, the, um, all the kind of grief procedures of tearing their garments and such. And then they sit in silence with him for seven days, in verse 13 of Job 2. And as many, many people have said, it would have been very good for them to stop there, but they don't. They have to get in a conversation, a long back-and-forth conversation with Job about how to explain this series of tragedies. And they argue with Job. Their argument is somebody must have done something wrong. He must have done something wrong because, after all, we know the facts of divine justice. And Job is arguing that he hasn't, and so he wants an audience with God to explain and defend himself. And at the end, the Lord appears to silence them all with the display of his sovereign majesty. They have all spoken of greater things than they know. They've all spoken in error. And his words are especially scathing against Job's friends. In Job 42.7, he addresses one of the friends, but there are three of them. So he says, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Um, A lot of the things that they've said are things that you can back up in in other parts of Scripture. They're, They're facts about God's justice and facts about how kind of proverbial type facts about certain behaviors lead to certain outcomes. The problem is that they have, uh, they have spoken 
They thought that they knew more about God than they do about his, his secret providences. The right answer to the, the puzzle of the book of Job is not to arrange all the facts, but to sit in silence and reverence and let God be God. That's what they should have done. And Job takes us beyond, beyond the, fa- the, the limits of our factual knowledge. doesn't deny truth we know about God, but it just means there's a place that sometimes we're beyond our understanding about God. And there's mystery in his sovereign providences, and we need to leave those mysteries to him. Um, there's one more category to talk about biblically here, and the Bible does more with those mysteries than simply acknowledge that sometimes we're beyond the limits of our knowledge about God. Uh, it gives us a vocabulary for dealing with those times and experiences and emotions that seem to press against what we know about God. And those, that, that biblical vocabulary is called lament. Lament. Um, we're going we're gonna to kind of define and, and look a little bit at biblical lament here, and then we're going to return it later as a kind of a, a practical matter for us as a church. But there's an author named Mark Vrogop, I think that's how you pronounce his name, defines biblical lament as, I think I'll put the definition in in your handout, a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And he goes on to explain, laments are more than merely an expression of sorrow. Um, Anyone, any non-believer can express sorrow. But what he says is, he goes on, the goal of lament is to recommit oneself to hoping in God, believing his promises, and a godly response to pain, suffering, and injustice. It's the voice of God's people while living in a broken world. They talk to God about the paradox of God's promises and the presence of pain, end quote. And so I think that idea of paradox is important because there's certain facts that the psalmist knows about God, certain doctrines that are important, biblical truth, but then there's this experience that I wouldn't say contradicts, but I, I'm using the term presses against the facts, and it's going, how, 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 if God is so faithful, if God is so full of steadfast love, why am I walking through the things I'm walking through? We're going to look at an example of that in a moment. Uh, sometimes in biblical lament, the author raises questions that we could easily answer with biblical facts. And, and even maybe make statements that we could contradict with biblical facts. The point of lament isn't as much about factuality as coming to the throne of grace with all the messiness of our experiences and emotions in a fallen world. So let's get in, just to get a flavor for this, and I, and I put in the end of your handout from this author, Mark Vrogop, a list of laments, lament psalms, and there's different categories he gives. I haven't looked through all of them to confirm that I think they're laments, but I'm trusting that's a, that's a good res- I just wanted to pass along that resource to you if you want to look at more lament psalms. But we're going to read uh, Psalm 77, verses 1 to 10. It's kind of a longer, it's the first half of that psalm. Of course, there's more in the second half, but for the sake of time, we'll just read these 10 verses. Would someone be willing to read Psalm 77, verses 1 to 10? Done. 1 to 10. Psalm 77, 1 to 10. Thank you. 
You have held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. Will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Then I said, It is my grief that the right hand of the Most God has changed. All right. Thank you, Don. Um, two features I want to draw. One is, what are some expressions of grief in this, in this passage? Yeah, John. Uh, verse 9, stand up. Uh, mm-hmm. My says, Has God forgotten to be gracious? Yeah. Yeah, so that's an expression of how the psalmist feels and going, it doesn't seem... Maybe the implication is it doesn't seem like God is, be, is, is being gracious. Yeah, has he forgotten to be gracious? Yeah. Any other expressions of grief? Yeah, Tom. Uh, in verse 2 it says, my soul refuses to be comforted. Yeah, wow, isn't that, it's a powerful picture. My soul refuses to be comforted. And maybe we felt that, right, where there's nothing you can say to yourself. There's, not, you know, there's no way anybody can cheer you up. You're just uh, in the depths of, of, of uh, sorrow over something. Yeah, there there are several, right? The, my, um, I'm so troubled that I cannot speak, things like that. Uh, the the second feature I wanted to ask is what are some what are some examples of questions in the text that we could answer with teaching that we know elsewhere from the Bible? Exactly. Has has his steadfast love forever ceased? What's the answer to that question? No. no. Okay, what else? Has his promise failed forever? Has his promise failed forever? What's the answer to the question? No. no. <laughs> and John, what you brought up earlier was one of those questions. All of verses 7 through 9 are those questions. Has he forgotten to be gracious? No. Um, the point, again, is not to undermine the facts. The point isn't to make us, leave us thinking that God isn't gracious or that God, uh, God's steadfast love will end. The point is that there's a category that God wants in his word for times when the question just is the question. <coughs> and we live with that question. Um, if, if this were an inappropriate way, mode, of, mode of being, um, this psalm wouldn't be here. It would be like, don't ask it. You know, it would be like, don't ask a foolish question like that. We all know the answer to that question. God doesn't. God doesn't respond that way. We do know the answer to the question, but there's this honoring and acknowledging the fact that we are but dust. And often in the storms of life, we're in this place where we just we just live in these questions. Is God? I know God. We. I'm sure the psalmist knows these answers, but he's wrestling and struggling and going. Is God really full of steadfast love and faithfulness? Is, are those things really unfailing? And it's okay to God that, that and he wants, he's, you know, he puts this in his word as a model to us. It's okay that we're there sometimes. It's a very, and it's not an error, okay? 
Scripture doesn't have errors. It's not an error to put these truths in question because it, it's capturing a very real experience for the suffering people of God. Um, ultimately, God wants us to be in a place where we can reaffirm these truths. But this is often where we are. We're in the, we're in the depths and, and we just have to live with these questions. And, and the, the, the brilliant thing about lament is that they're Godward expressions of these things. So that, like I said, anyone can sorrow, and, and our Mark Rogop, it's a really good um, definition, a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Anyone can be sad, anyone can question God. This is a God-word taking of these things and these questions and these struggles and just going, kind of laying them before him and going, this is where I am with these questions. Um, now, back to our race and ethnicity thing. There are some in the, we've talked about the critical race theory um, camp or the, the kind of seeing everything through this lens of race and power and oppression. There are some in this camp who claim that factual knowledge itself is an instrument of white supremacy. So that to insist on facts is a racist uh, maneuver, a racist move. Now that's an error. I hope we, we can see clearly from the biblical text that um, facts and truth matter greatly to God. That's an important mode. But some, uh, again, in the kind of the, the extreme reaction to CRT and in some of the Christian circles that this is all overblown, can overreact, I think, sometimes by acting as though only statistics and facts matter with, again, like the thorny problem that I presented to you. And so um, you, you see every time that, again, there's one of these really troubling killings in the news, it's met with just all these stats about how, the, you know, stats and facts about how this is an un- um, uncommon occurrence, and etc. As though, if you can just explain the, the statistics of it, that, that makes the problem go away. The, the, the biblical truth is that the particulars and the facts of each case matter for justice, but God also deeply honors and cares about our emotions and experiences. Those, those are both important categories. So I've, I've talked a lot. I haven't opened up the questions in a while because I just want to kind of lay out this whole framework for thinking, but now I do want to just ask. I know we've covered a lot. Some of this may be a little hard to put together, uh, but are there any questions or, or pushback or thoughts or things anyone wants to add? Yeah, Emily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what is the difference between sorrow and lament? I would say sorrow is an ingredient of lament. But a lament is a specifically Godward thing. Sorrow, anyone, everyone's sad at times. Every non-believer, every, you know, it's not, there's nothing inherently uh, God-centered about being sad. But lament is a certain way of being sad that kind of directs that sadness to God in a way that's moving toward hope? Yeah. It's a gr- good question. Yeah. You're... yeah. Mm-hmm. Only believers can truly lament. I-, I think so. I think it's kind of like Thanksgiving, where there- there's a certain sense in which non-believers, it's, every Thanksgiving it comes up that you know everyone's like, let's be thankful. And then it- but it's kind of like, yeah, I get, there's this sentiment that everyone's expressing, but who are you thanking? You know, and, and, and it's often just this very undefined, like there's no real, there's no real recipient of that. And I would just say, maybe there's a sentiment there. Maybe someone could, could do something like lament. But ultimately, there's a, 
there's a recipient of that, rightly understood. In, in the biblical sense, it's God. Just like Thanksgiving. Yeah. yeah. Good questions. Uh, this is a prayer category that we know we might be off our radar, um, personally and corporately. Um, but it's important. And we're going to talk a little bit in a, in a moment about how it plays into this ethnicity and race conversation. Yeah, Josh. Mm-hmm. Can vary from from like what's like factually true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in cases like that, um, is that wise to really like be sharing that with others? Mm-hmm. Like maybe questions, like questions like the psalmist asked here, like yeah. You know, like, are his promises, like, really going to happen? Like, is that something that should really be, like, primarily between you and God? Like, hey, my experience mm-hmm. is back. Um, like, my heart is broken, and I don't know how to piece this together. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, should be, like, proclaiming to other people then? Good question. So is this, is, is this something to keep very private? Because, and, and maybe what's implied, and I appreciate your question, is there, there's potential for creating confusion if we're, if, we're, if we're public about, if we're corporately or publicly... Um, expressing these things. I mean, the psalm, the psalter is a very public context. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not sure that the answer is completely like every context, no matter what. Like, so yeah, I think there could be wisdom considerations of is this the time and place to publicize this kind of emotion? And you know, I, I, I raised the issue of social media, and you know, that's a whole other, you know, you know, where, where does that fit into all this? But let's say, I mean, let's say we have a corporate, let's say we have a corporate worshiping context. Let's say the local church. I think because, I think anything you see in the Psalter would be fair game for the kind of thing that could be expressed in the context of a, a local church's worship. Um, I, I, I would say that um, lament is inappropriate. Uh, and even raising these hard questions would be appropriate in the context of the local church. As long as it's in the, it's in the broader context of clear teaching about these truths. So... Um, if in the, the, the overall diet of a local church, these, the, the steadfast love and mercy of God are being expressed clearly, there could be moments of going, God, we, str- you know, are, we struggle to see your steadfast love and faithfulness uh, in this situation. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there could be a, that could be a good conversation just as a church about, and leaders about when and where to, to convey what. But I would just say there's something inherently public about this altar, about the, the psalms. And they seem to have been meant for public worship in Israel's um, usage as well. Even though a lot of times they're written from an individual, you know, it's I. Yeah. Good question. Yeah, Jason. Yes, yes, yeah. And I, yeah, that's an important point. Yeah, and I kind of, you know, I, I kind of wrestled with is this sort of cherry picking to end at ten and not read the whole thing for the sake of time. But he he never he never answers those questions. But he does talk about God's works in the past in the last ten verses, which I think is moving him toward going. He's sort of like free falling, you know, and going, do I know anything about God, you know? And then he's going, well, he did this in the past with Israel. He brought them through the sea. You know, he's remembering the works of God in the past that I think is giving him a solid thing to grip to kind of restore his orientation. So, yeah, that's an important point, too, that it, most of the Psalms end with some kind of but, but God. 
Psalm, I think it's 88 is like the class, like the, the, the famous example, like the, the one that doesn't go there just ends in darkness. So there's a place for that too. But most of the lament psalms, there's a but God, some kind of movement toward uh, grabbing hold of, of firm truth. Yeah, that's a good point. So let's talk about um, a way forward then. Um, having seen these, these uh, having seen these, Different modes, I guess we could say, different modes of seeing reality. Um, let's talk about a way forward. Um, the first is to listen. And uh, it's humbling to realize how different other people's experiences have been than, than my own. Um, by The hazard of creating this thorny example I gave at the beginning is, I, again, I don't want to make it sound like one group is only cares about truth and the other group only cares about how they feel. Because again, we all have different experiences and our understanding of the facts can vary quite a bit as well. Um, so even we are going to have differences on, on facts based on our experience. Um, it's it's uh, in, a, in, the, in our modern age, we tend to think, we tend to really put a high value on empirical kind of scientific knowledge that we can measure, we can, we can look at statistics and all that. But still, in reality, most of what we know, we know from testimony from others. The great majority of everything we know, we know because someone else told us and we trusted them. And so, you know, our knowledge is going to be really limited in a lot of ways by the, the kinds of people that we trust and know. Um, and part of the Bible's call to love within the local church um, that we, we looked at last week, this idea of the church is to be a place of radical unity and love around Christ and the gospel. Part One of the um, really um, important and necessary components of that is that we listen to each other. Um, listening is not explicit here, but I, again, I have two, two readers, one for Romans 12.10 and the other for um, Proverbs 18.13. We would be able to read Romans uh, twelve ten. Yeah, Matt and uh, Matt Wolf for Romans twelve ten, and Matt Boyd for Proverbs eighteen thirteen. Romans twelve ten. Mm-hmm. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Thank you. So love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. It's impossible to have brotherly affection for somebody, and it's impossible to seek to extend honor. I love the idea of a contest of honor. Who can honor the other uh, more? If we're not listening to others and carefully trying to understand them, especially, again, this idea of this people that see this, this one thing in the news said differently and maybe have such different responses and maybe that's rooted in different experiences, um, the temptation that I express is for each of them to see the other person's response and to interpret it in a way that's really dishonoring of the other person, right? This kind of dismissive and going like, oh, you only think that because, uh, and then kind of ascribe some external reason. And there's, there's a failure to love with brotherly affection there and go, wow, that, that seems so different than the way I see it. Brother, I'd love to hear more about why you think that and really, and really listen to learn, really listen to, to try to show honor to that person going, I want, I want to know why, you're, why you see it the way you do. Both sides could fall into could fall into failing to love and honor each other with regard to that. Uh, Matt Boyd, uh, Proverbs eighteen thirteen. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. That's another proverb to keep in your back pocket. There's probably a lot of <laughs> your back pocket you fat with all the proverbs to keep in there. But 
Man, if you give an answer before you hear, it's folly and shame. So applicable in so many areas that we think we know. And we start giving an answer. We start giving an interpretation or a ruling on some issue before we have really heard. I, I And this is for myself and for so many others. It's so rare that when we're listening to people, we're, we're doing nothing but really just trying to listen and understand what they're saying. It's so often, especially if there's like a disagreement, it's so often, it's so easy to slip into, you're thinking about, what am I going to say next? How am I going to refute what you're saying? It's, uh, and, and not just an argument, but if there's like disagreement or tension at all, rather than literally just going, I just want to know, I really just want to know what, what you think. I really, really want to understand how you're thinking. Yeah, Blake, do you have something to say about that? In our culture, over the last 20 years, it seems like, not just in our culture, but around the world, things have become so polarized, yeah. religiously and politically, that mm-hmm. I think it's easy for all of us on all sides of the religious and political spectrum to think cynically, to think yeah. that, that, well, they, they, this person only thinks that because of this. And so yeah. it's, like, it's like, I think there's no substitute for thoughtfulness. Yeah. Because with these matters, because it seems like the last 20 years things have become more cynical. Yeah. And so I think that one of the most important things we can do, as you said, is just to listen, just to mm-hmm. hear the other side and not not to prepare to question them or mm-hmm. rebuke them, but mm-hmm. just to find out what their perceptions are. Yeah, exactly. It, there's this broader context of society where wisdom has fallen on hard times. It's, always, it's, it's never been. Uh, it's never been a native to this world since the fall, but in our culture we're seeing some ways that folly is especially ruling the public square and cynicism and, and poli- yeah, polarization for sure. And I think that one thing that's very important to remember when it comes to religious and political conversation is that a lot of it is just a difference of the head rather than the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, because so many of us come from different backgrounds. Yeah. So we're kind of used to seeing things in a certain way. Yeah. That's why listening is so important. Because yeah. we, we can learn more as we listen and not just prepare to question or refute. Yeah. Yeah, we all have stuff to learn from other people. And not everything everyone's saying is right. We don't have to agree with everything. But we just as fundamental, like, I, I don't know everything. I don't see everything. I need to learn from others. Very good. Yeah, Jason. Yeah, speaking as someone who's messed up a lot of different <laughs> conversations over the years, I mean, I think... There, there's an inherent, I think we can recognize too, there's an inherent um, uh, limitation in a person's ability to articulate things. So yeah. if I stub my toe, it's really easy for me to tell you what the problem is. But mm-hmm. the, depending on the medium that I'm using, social media versus the conversation and the complexity of the issue, I'm probably going to truncate a lot of things. I'm probably yeah. going to use terms maybe not in an overly precise way, especially on emotional yeah. So the idea that I'm going to exactly articulate exactly the whole everything I'm thinking and feeling in yeah. a way is just a, a laughable concept. And so yeah. understanding that just because someone said something, even if they use words that you're interpreting correctly, there, there may still be more you have to unpack. It's yeah. really important. Yeah, so just you, very good. So just realizing, especially because the way emotion and experience plays into how we, how we communicate and how we think, that... Um, Often people are struggling to find words for where, what they think and feel. And uh, so that, in my mind, that leads to the, that kind of is a really good segue to the next point, which is sympathy. Because I think what you're describing is sympathetic listening, which is there's a way of listening that's like harsh and going, I'm going to be like really rigid and, and 
try to press on every every like thing you said that maybe the word wasn't the right choice or whatever. Or there's a way of listening that's gracious and sympathetic. Going, I want I want to believe the best of you. I want to hear you in the best light that I can. I want to really understand what. I want to help you, right? I want to hear you with this sense of like, I want to try to help understand. You're trying to communicate. I want to help. I'm not this brick wall going like, use better words. You know, that it kind of makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Each of us has had a limited set of experiences. Um, race, of course, race, like everything else pretty much in this course, race and ethnicity is what we're focusing on. That's one big set of factors for different experiences, but many other differences exist uh, between us and they all affect how we view reality. It's easy to, extrapolate our own differences to, to extend our limited set of experiences and say, well, that's reality. That's what it is. And, and realize that others have, uh, others have had different, a uh, different view and we need to adjust maybe our understanding of reality based on their view. Um, I want to return to the, the law enforcement example. Um, and then be a little bit autobiographical on this. My, my dad worked all my life growing up and still works in the criminal justice system and I uh, know this, this isn't Father's Day, it's Mother's Day. But I'm going to, just just a little homage to him. He's one of the most fair-minded people I've ever known. Uh, he's, he's kind and generous, very fair-minded. To the extent I've interacted with his colleagues, they all seem to be honest, kind, and fair people as well. And every law enforcement officer I've ever known personally has been an admirable person, someone I respect and thought well of. And when, when I was young, every once in a while, I'd hear some talk uh, from, especially ethnic minorities, talking about unfair treatment from law enforcement. And I reflexively assumed, well, you probably did something wrong, and you're probably facing the consequences, and so now you're playing the victim. Because, I, because based on my experience with law enforcement officers, that just seems implausible that you'd be treated unfairly. And it wasn't until I became an adult, and I got to know some people well from my, uh, ethnic minorities who had different life experiences and from a standpoint of relational knowledge of that person and trust where I knew this is not a victim mentality type person and they're still just straightforwardly reporting experiences they've had where they it's very clear they were being treated unjustly because of their ethnic, uh, the group that they were in and I was finally able to hear them humbly and I had to deal with the fact that they had had different experiences than I had of the law enforcement system and the, the justice system. Um, now, what does it look like to outdo that person in showing honor as a brother in Christ? Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean I have to adopt their perspective entirely. And it doesn't necessarily mean they have to adopt my perspective entirely. Um, but it would be horribly unloving to write this person off as a dupe that's just been fed media propaganda and misinterpreted their experiences because they're, uh, they're a tool of, of kind of the, the corrupt media or something like that. I just have to... Listen and, and say that's their experience. And in love, I just, you know, I just have to take that for what it is. Um, it can be a, a weird place that leaves us, right? Where does that leave me? What are the facts? The facts are there are good and bad people, uh, from a human standpoint, there are good and bad people in the criminal justice system doing good and bad work. Um, now, what are the proportions of each? Right? That's kind of this big question we're all wrestling with as a society. Well, how bad is law enforcement? How good is law enforcement? Um, I have my perspective and other people have theirs. But we need to just be willing to listen and give space for each other's differences. That's, the, that's, what, that's, what I'm, I, I, that's what I'm arguing is an extension or an application of the biblical call to have brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, and be willing to listen before you give an answer. 
We just have to, and, and there's, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty we have to land on sometimes. That's, again, part of being finite creatures in a fallen world. We don't totally understand the situation. We have to just live with that. Some, and it doesn't just go one way. I hope it's clear. Someone else may have a different story coming from a different starting point. Uh, they've grown up thinking that law enforcement is basically corrupt and racist because they've had bad experiences growing up and they've heard a lot from others who've had bad experiences. That person joins a church where there are law enforcement officers as fellow members of the church, brothers in Christ. So that person's going to have to do some humble listening and brotherly affection and outdoing and showing honor and being willing to maybe have their perspective change as well. So, any thoughts about that particular application or this whole matter of listening? Yeah, Blake. I am. You know, it's interesting. I found that one of the most important things a person can do when talking about any subject, whether it be religion or politics or culture or race or whatever, Mm -hmm. One of the most important things you can do is remember that as human beings, we're not always right. Mm-hmm. I've known Amen. many people in my life just growing up um, who reacted in a knee-jerk way to anything yeah. that disagrees with their perception. Yeah. And they, because they get set in their ways at such an early age. Yeah. Because of that, anything that, that counters what they grew up believing was somehow wrong. Yeah, but I think the most important thing we can do is remember that we're not always right. Yeah, I'm not always right in my perception. Like my parents aren't always right because so many people can't take criticism. In yeah, the world. And so we see yeah. the effects of that in politics yeah. and war, so many different areas. And so, True. as a human being, when I became an adult. I had to realize that maybe my perceptions are not 100% all the time. Right. That's such an important kind of self-critical perspective that really underlies tons of the Proverbs is you are not always right. (laughs) Just live your whole life knowing that. That's just such an important. You are not always right. It's part of fearing the Lord is the Lord is always right. I'm not always right. Um, Yeah. So much of that's underneath the Proverbs like what we've seen. Let's talk, about, um, let's talk about sympathizing. This is beyond, kind of the step beyond listening well, and Jason anticipated it well, uh, because there, and it even pertains to how we listen, right? Whether we're listening sympathetically or we're listening kind of with a hard heart. But um, we listen, and of course, I'm kind of dealing specifically with people sharing painful experiences, painful backgrounds, or their own pain over uh, an event that happens maybe in our, in, in, in our current day. Um, we sympathize with them. First Peter 3, 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And um, I think we read this one last week, and we could spend weeks unpacking this verse. Every one of these elements in First Peter 3, 8 relates directly to how we relate over this matter of ethnicity and race. Um, unity of mind. This is the church. This is the people of God. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. But sympathy basically means hurting with someone. Sim is the Greek for with, and path is, is like pain. So pain with someone. And um, it's, it's a form of love that comes alongside another and adopts his or her hurts as my own. And it's not necessarily because I'm going through the same experiences, but simply because that person matters to me. 
And that person who matters to me, who is my brother or sister in Christ, with whom I share eternal uh, fellowship in Christ, when they're hurting, necessarily there's a, there's a degree to which I should hurt with them. That's what sympathy means. Um, now, what if someone is hurting? I want to ask a question. I, this is for you all to answer. What if somebody is hurting over something that I disagree on the facts with? Let's say there's something that happens in the news that they think it's a, an example of injustice, and I don't see it that way, but they're, they're, they're hurting over that. Well, how does sympathy fit into that situation? Yeah, Matt. Yeah. We can maybe gently and lovingly guide them to mm-hmm. understand that maybe your emotions are based off of false ideas. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of what we do in evangelism. Yeah. Is, is we come alongside and, and present to people what may actually be factual. That's assuming that what they're responding to are provable um, falsehoods. Right, right. If it can be shown that it's factually incorrect. If the emotions that you're feeling are based on falsehoods, then there's a gentle way to bring them. Mm-hmm. Without denying, obviously the response to the facts is true and real. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, their response to their false understanding of the uh-huh. facts is true and right, real. Right, right. But there can be a way to gently bring them to an understanding of the facts as yeah. they are. Yeah. Um, but with love and care. Right. And, uh, knowing that we ourselves are Right. So that's good. I want to draw a few things you said. One is, there could be a conversation together about what the facts are, uh, because again, the facts matter to God. Uh, but two things. One is, we acknowledge that, that what their, resp- their response is real and matters. And then, uh, secondly, that affects how we, would, how we would interact with them and how we would communicate with them. And of course, as I'm sure it's implied, your degree to which you can engage these things are going to very much depend on the kind of relationship you have and how close you are. Um, I would think, too, and, and I kind of framed it, the facts as you know them, is I, I hope we would, to Blake's point, I hope we would all be willing to maybe be open to reason as to whether our understanding of the facts is, tr- is true. Like, we may misunderstand the facts. So there's always a sense of, well, maybe they know something about it we don't know. But, but let's say if we've, we've seen the evidence and we're convinced, um, there could be a place for having a reasonable conversation with the person, but definitely not um, bowling them over with facts or or ignoring the reality of their pain. Their pain matters to God, and it should matter to one another. Um, and uh, sometimes we may, yeah, sometimes we may still disagree with their assessment of the facts. We are going in the body of Christ to have very different positions on what we think of certain things about what the facts are about, about the world. Or we may just have to be kind of agnostic about certain things. I don't know. He thinks this, you know, I, I think maybe there's more to it. And, and there's just, there may need to be a lot of things we don't know and have to acknowledge that, but we can still sympathize because again, like Matt said, their pain matters and it's real. Yeah, Josh. Sort of with rubber meets the road. Mm-hmm. How do we um, work with that? But at the same time, avoid slander. Uh-huh. Because, I mean, the Bible does talk a lot about slander. Mm-hmm. Um, like, that's, that's wicked. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes, um, if someone has a perspective that seems totally out of line with yeah, yeah. Um, oftentimes that becomes slanderous. Yeah. Like just like, um, let's say someone 
came to me and said, hey, like, a, someone in leadership at your church, like, assaulted me or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would be like, oh, my goodness, that's so terrible. Like, let's go cry together. Yeah. And we'd be like, okay, you know, like, yeah. Second Timothy talks about, like, let's have some witnesses and yeah. verify before we start, like, you know, like, working through that. Like, yeah. Like, slender is a really big deal. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question that, uh, man, just in the complexity of the situation, it could go a lot of directions. But it's a good thread of truth, which is um, part of, th- th- there could be a place for, and you know, we're talking a lot about how to deal with somebody who's hurting. Maybe we're not, also, we need to talk about how to hurt, right? Which is, uh, we need to be careful, maybe if we're, if we're experiencing pain, to be careful not to, um, not to slander, or not to, to, um, necessarily say this person did this horrible thing when may, maybe they're I, I feel really I feel that this is a very painful event but I may be having, having to acknowledge that I don't know exactly what happened but yeah if somebody is responding that way and they're coming out very strong on somebody did something bad yeah there could that's a good I don't know how it exactly fits into the equation but that's a good piece of it right that um, they might be tempted to slander or speak evil of a person that the facts maybe, maybe not. And I, what I'd say is our response, I would say there's a place for totally owning like, man, I'm so sorry, this, this is a really hard, like owning the pain, but not affirming the slander. And maybe like Matt said, maybe there's a place eventually to kind of return to the facts of it and go, let's be really careful just about this, this individual. And maybe it's more complicated than, than you're seeing it. Um, and, and, um, yeah, so that's kind of on the category of facts, but it matters. It, it's it's a good reason why we don't discard facts because it really can hurt people if people are if people are spreading false facts, right? Yeah. Like where I was coming from with that is, um, like I really want to um, like have sorrow and be brokenhearted with those that are mm-hmm. brokenhearted um, about. Um, there's no shortage <laughs> of bad things in the world that yeah. I'm brokenhearted about. Um, I just, I just get really tired of seeing um, articles, even mm-hmm. in, like, well, even in, like, from Christian organizations mm-hmm. that we would be aligned with, um, that basically call someone, like, a racist, mm-hmm. or someone, like, a racist mass killer, or something yeah, yeah. like that. Um, it's just like that, and then it comes to, like, that's absolutely baseless. Um, yeah, just yeah. Just, like, yeah, they want and and then they call them that and then ask me to lament. And so yeah, yeah. And it's like, like, what am I? It's like I can't right. lament with you over something that seems like on its face false. Um, and then it seems like you've slandered the person. So mm-hmm. I just kind of feel like get beaten up with that. Sometimes. Yeah, part of it too. And I agree. And this stuff's complicated. Part of it is there's this is a very public sphere. People we don't know. People writing articles. And and I would say part of it is. Yeah, there's a lot of just good discussion possible here. And part of it is maybe um, this is this becomes more and more clear at closer and closer relationships of how we can interact with people over. It's really hard to know how do I interact, how do I respond to somebody I don't know writing an article from some national organization telling me how to feel about a situation. And I'm not I'm not saying that doesn't matter. I'm saying you're right that it creates all these complexities of you can't have a conversation with that author. Um, yeah. So I, I'm going to kind of leave it there of just, it's messy, but that's good stuff to wrestle with. Yeah, Gary. Something that, you know, you can take with a grain of sand, what I say, that, you know, some things that kind of work for me 
Historic Jews, and, mm-hmm. and they they would be careful in what they say mm-hmm. because they if you say something and it's out, you can't take it back once it's heard. And so the the Jews were very careful, mm-hmm. a, according to that cultural yeah. study that he was telling us about. And I and I took it to heart that sometimes we say something. Because maybe we're offended. Yeah. And if we could learn to be quiet, as yeah, it says, yeah. um, you know, and, and, and listen, and then just listen. Yeah. You know, if you say stuff, you can't take it back. Yeah. And so I strive, at least in my own personal, probably people say, wow, he isn't doing a very good job. <laughs> but uh, I try not to, yeah. not to say things. And then... I call it a First Peter Christian, and it's in those in in the second chapter, and it says, "For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly." Many times, I think that I have suffered unjustly. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe it wasn't unjust, but I want to practice that. I want to bear up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin? Your heart should be treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure mm-hmm. it, this finds favor with God. Then verse 21 says, this is the example that Christ said, while being reviled, he did not revile in return mm-hmm. while suffering. He uttered yeah. no threats and stuff. So sometimes when I hear these things, and it does mm-hmm. irritate me, like Josh was saying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, then I have to try to practice. Okay. Yeah. Let's calm down. Yeah. Don't, yeah. You know. And so this is what I would say as a way of encouragement. At, at least it's. I think it works for me. You guys have to be the judge yeah, yeah. because you, you know me. But yeah. But try to okay. Back yeah. off just a little. Yeah. Bit first. So uh, yeah, that's a really good point. And just to summarize briefly is. Um, yeah, we're, we can't take words back, and there's a lot of warnings in the Bible against the folly of our speech. Um, and so, especially when we're suffering or hurting, um, what I would say, that's a good segue toward our last step, which is lament, which is that often we say foolish things when we're hurting because, and we can maybe make foolish complaints when we're hurting or angry responses to others, whatever, because we're not praying. <laughs> we can say anything to God in terms of like un, unprocessed thoughts and stuff. He... he he, he's, he can take it all. I'm not talking about blaspheming, but I just mean we can take all of the, um, wherever we're at as raw and as unprocessed as our thoughts are, we can take that to God and uh, he hears. Um, the final step is to lament together, lament both individually and together. Uh, but I'm talking especially about how we, we, we take our own pains and the pains of our brothers and sisters in Christ, we lay them before our God, our just and merciful God together. And... Um, Fundamentally, we have Christ, the high priest, who is sympathetic. So Ephesians four fifteen to 16, we do not have a high priest who is una- unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace to find help in time of need. 
So Christ is the ultimate sympathetic one, our high priest who um, ushers us to the throne of grace where we can take all these complaints, all of our needs and sorrows, and know that God has a graciously open ear to us. I want to highlight three reasons especially why lament is an important tool for dealing with these really hard matters of ethnicity and race. Um, the first is, these problems are beyond our ability to fix. Okay? Now, as I said earlier on, kind of clarifying from last week, we each have our responsibility and things that we can do and must do, but it's so little compared with the size and complexity of these knots. Okay? These are big, deep, hard problems that go way back into history and have all these layers of sin and, and so on. Um, and even in an individual case like that high-profile shooting, you know, we only know so much of the facts. We'll only ever know so many of the facts. We don't know everything. We might be tempted in a man-centered way of thinking to kind of a hyperactivism, to going, we got to figure out how to fix this. We got to fix it by the power of man, by policies and this and that, activism. And I'm not saying there's no place for policies or, or things in our society. But lament is beautiful because it gives us an outlet to actually do something about the problem, taking it to God himself, while still acknowledging the limits of our understanding and power. You don't have to know everything about the situation to lament to God. You don't have to be able to do anything else. You don't have to have any power at all other than you have the open ear of God himself and you can cry out to him. We and we together in sympathy with one another, we should be doing that together. The second benefit is that the pains are sometimes beyond our ability to manage. Uh, Some of our spiritual siblings, especially, again, people from ethnic minority groups may face pains and griefs that are built up over years. And sometimes words, kind of to Jason's point, sometimes words cannot express all that someone's feeling. And I've I've recommended Shailen's book, uh, The New Reformation. It's an appendix in that book, but also just a standalone article he wrote called George Floyd and Me. That's a really good just personal reflection on how the George Floyd killing affected him. And you can just tell there's just all these years and layers of painful experiences that when that happened, it just, it just evokes just unspeakable grief in his own life uh, because of the context of, of what he's experienced. Um, and we might be tempted to respond with apathy if that's not been our experience and go, oh, okay, uh, that's, that's kind of weird that you feel so strongly about it or whatever. Uh, Lament gives us an outlet to truly care and come alongside others in their sorrow or anger. Again, whatever they're, however they're processing and feeling, we can come alongside and take that to God with them. And um, it's kind of been implied already, but lament fulfills the biblical call. The third benefit is it fulfills the biblical call to love each other by sharing each other's joys and sorrows. Romans twelve fifteen to 16a, beginning of verse 16, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. And I think it's no accident that those two things are put next to each other. That part of how we live in harmony with one another is by syncing up our sorrows and our joys together. Um, The sympathy, including lamenting to God together, is part of how we fulfill the New Testament vision for church unity. Lamenting together and rejoicing together creates harmony. It's one of the ways that we... Uh, protect the unity of the spirit that we heard about in Ephesians 4.3 is by sharing sorrows and sharing joys together. Um, There's all kinds of practical ways this might look in our interpersonal relationships in the body and even in our, pub, like our public prayers and things like that that could be interesting to think through. Don't have time to talk through all the, all the implications, but um, this can be a powerful tool. Listening 
Three, I, again, three powerful tools, listening, sympathizing, and lamenting. Uh, we've seen from a biblical standpoint, facts matter deeply for justice, but they're not all that matters to God. One, to kind of summarize that, one author has said, facts are a first and last resort in the court of law, but when it comes to human relationships, let us first stop and feel before we go to facts. So there's not a rejection of facts, but there's this acknowledgement that there's something, there's, there's other, a larger context of emotion and experience that matters for relationships. And um, God has given us these wonderful tools in Christ to, um, to share griefs and to, to walk together, even if we don't know all the details, even if we don't agree on all the details, uh, but a way, to, a way to guard unity. So any closing questions or thoughts? Uh, if you have anything a little more involved, I'd be glad to dialogue later, of course, but uh, as we close, any, any other amens, disagreements? All right, let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you for Christ and how he unifies us in the gospel. We thank you for just the beauty of how <coughs> your justice is like the mountains. It's towering. It's formidable. You're impartial. You care about the truth. You care about all the facts. And yet you care about our hearts. You know that we're dust. You sympathize. You sent Christ to sympathize as our high priest. Please help us to extend that same (coughs) zeal for truth and love to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.